This 18th issue of the Peace on Drugs podcast is brought to you by the U.S. Constitution. That wonderful document put together by the Founding Fathers and ratified in 1788 and has been in operation since 1789 and is the very document that is America. Does the red, white, and blue flag make you feel emotional? That flag is a symbolic representation of the U.S. Constitution. Does the Star-Spangled Banner make you swell up with love for your country and troops? Everything that song stands for and our troops fight for is written in our Constitution. But I must warn you, the threat against our constitutional rights comes not from abroad, but from our very own leaders and law enforcement agencies. The First Amendment gives us freedom of religion and speech. When the Nixon administration didn't like the anti-war hippies and the black civil rights movement, he couldn't arrest them for speaking their minds or for the color of their skin, so he asked, what can I arrest them for? Turns out, drugs were popular in some of those communities, especially with the hippies. And so, criminalize drugs hard and you could now kick in the door wherever you wanted to and break up whatever meeting you wanted to, even if you only found a little bit of drugs, like even a joint. Nixon started the drug war. Loophole around the First Amendment. Freedom of religion? My personal spiritual quest involves using plants like cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms. Can I practice my spiritual rituals without interference from the law? Nope. These laws have come to be called the drug exception to the Constitution. The Fourth Amendment prevents the government from searching you or your property without just cause. But when the Reagan administration declared drugs a threat to national security, the Supreme Court was happy to make drug exceptions to the Fourth Amendment. Drug-sniffing dogs are not in violation. Heat-detecting planes can fly over and scan your house in hopes of uncovering heat lamps used to grow cannabis. Random stops to check if you've been drinking called DUI checkpoints. New York City stop and frisk anyone suspicious, which usually the very color of your skin constituted suspicion. Also, you got a taillight out? That's enough to pull you over, and if your eyes are a little red, then well, you might have to stand on the side of the road while some cop goes through all your personal belongings. The Second Amendment guarantees us the right to bear arms. Just don't have them if you also have drugs on you, because now they become not so legal. The Founding Fathers would never have allowed a drug exception to their document, and we shouldn't stand for it either. I'm going to read an excerpt from This Is Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan. Why is it illegal to plant a seed, a gift from nature, when your only intention is to grow it for its physical beauty? Yet, at the same time, it is perfectly legal to purchase an AK-47 when your only intention is gopher control. True, the Founding Fathers had provided for a specific right to bear arms, but the only reason they'd had nothing to say about the right to plant seeds was because it never would have occurred to them that any state might care to abridge that right. After all, they were writing on hemp paper. Time and time again, the Supreme Court has upheld constitutional violations when they involve drugs and when state courts have decided a drug bust to be unconstitutional, the Supreme Court has overturned them and ruled that they were in fact constitutional. To quote the dude, 
This aggression will not stand, man. Stand up, peaceniks. Speak out for our constitutional rights. All right, today's guest is a friend of mine, musician, artist, and all-around interesting dude. Check out his music on iTunes and Spotify, Singular Fashion. Thanks for listening to the Peace on Drugs. Let's jump into the deep end headfirst with Michael Pinckney. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. Drugs are menacing our society. Any thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the Peace on Drugs. drugs. So what's up, man? What's going on? Chilling. Just uh, working on the opioid crisis special today, doing a lot of work on that. That'll be out this week. Okay. Yeah, so uh, so we're going to talk about, I mean, we were just talking about the, uh, the opioid crisis with the Purdue Pharma and how these pain pills affect people's health. Because um, there's other aspects, what you were talking about is something that isn't talked about a lot. It's talked about overdose and death and addiction, but what about the medical problems that you have being on these medications constantly? Right. Like strokes. I mean, when I was addicted to Vicodin, I got my blood tested, and they said the doctor said it was the third highest he'd ever seen in his life for cholesterol. And I was like, oh, so I just need to diet and whatever. He's like, no, you have a condition. you got to take this medicine. So I started taking phenofibrate. I quit taking it. Now I exercise regularly, and my levels are fine. But I think the one thing he didn't know was I was addicted to Vicodin. That was something he couldn't do, you know, calculate into his reasons because all that Tylenol I was taking that was in Vicodin, Messes up your liver, so my liver. Yep, my liver probably wasn't processing the uh, the the cholesterol because it it gets a lot of that stuff out. But right. So, and you were saying that um, your your mom had had a stroke. Was that it? Well, I mean, growing up, I mean, she was on quite a bit of medications. Yeah. Um, you know, for depression and bipolar, and then probably heart, and then probably blood pressure. So there was like this cocktail that she was taking for a while that it would that it would change over the years if something wasn't working they'd add more or take something back and then there was just a point where she was having seizures she was having uh, you know multiple minor strokes until she had a big one. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing I didn't realize with the cholesterol thing was that I was prone to having a stroke with those kind of levels. I was at twelve hundred or something. Right. And um. And that's that can be permanently damaging, but right? Luckily, she probably she didn't have any permanent effects from those. Well, I mean, when she had the final stroke when we moved her down from Chicago, um, definitely they figured out that she was getting over medicated, which was causing a lot of different things. So they actually reduced a lot of the medications she was on, and then narrowed it down. And I believe that she doesn't even take anything for depression anymore. That, that's really good. I think that if you can handle your depression with, uh, Johan Hari has this book about it, about uh, lost connections, it's called, where he was on all these anti-depression uh, medications, SSRIs, and he said you, you gain weight, you put, those, you put a lot of weight on with those drugs, antipsychotic medicine, all that makes you gain weight. And he said that the actual data on how much they relieve depression is very, uh, they lie about a lot of it. They, they fudge the numbers. They do have a very slight amount where they help, but they make it sound like they're, they're a huge help. They're, they're not. You're actually even better off making um, the reason it's called Lost Connections is figuring out why you're sad, what's, what's going on in your life. And a lot of it is we, we're less connected than we've ever been, even though we're more connected than we've ever been. But it's all moved online, and that's not natural. We need human connection. Right. So. Right. 
Yeah. I, Let's touch on that if you want. We can go on and on about that I, one. I, um, about the, about social media. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you follow your lead. So if you got if you got some some subtopics, we can I can definitely jump well, in. On I mean, that. That, that, it's such a it's really a horrible. It can be a great thing. The internet can be the best thing we've ever created, or it could destroy humanity. It's and right now what's happening is what these Eastern European troll farms have figured out is they can manipulate us, you know, our country, the dividing in our country is the biggest thing that's threat to the United States. Russia's not going to be able to fight us in a war. We don't want to fight them. No, no nuclear powers are going head-to-head in an old-school war. Now it's like, we're going to go, yep, type it online. Let's get the let's get the right-wing people all mad about what the Antifa's doing. Let's get Antifa mad about this, and then let's get them to, to go in the streets and, and hit heads. And a lot of these, uh, are, are something Rogan posted, and I haven't looked into it whether it's true, but it said that 19 out of the top 20 visited Christian news sites are run by Eastern European troll farms. So whenever they see, oh, you got to listen to this doctor. He says coronavirus is not dangerous at all, and you should not get vaccinated. And my mom sends me these videos, and it's like an actual doctor. But a lot of these troll farms hire actors to play American doctors, and then make these fake documentaries, and then they put it on Facebook, and it finds its way into my mom, and she's like, oh, sending me all this stuff, like... Why she doesn't need to get vaxxed, which also it's, it's her, her her right to not get vaxxed. I agree with that, but I don't agree with all this misinformation. But it's getting hard to tell what's r- real information and what's not. Even for me, I watch CNN and I'm like, well, they're full of shit too. I I don't know where to get my news from. I, I trust certain people I listen to. How, how do you get like keep up with things? Well, I mean, I got this really fun game that I play with news. And that's reading body language. Yeah. I have this thing where I see what's coming out of the mouth, but I look at the eyes and I look how they sort of interact with each other, how they deliver the news. Gotcha. And it's almost like it's almost like sometimes they know that there's more to the truth, but they know that they have to read their teleprompter or their script or whatever so and i just have I've, I've always had this weird it's like reading someone's poker face like you're like yeah are they lying about that ace because you can see it on their face and that's what you're saying if they, if they say something that's true you might they might have a certain way that they say it and then if they say something that was bullshit they might have something they don't even realize they do that you're you're trying to pick up on exactly and what that I can give you a really great example of that actually and this was like 10 years ago prior to the t i met Sinead or not Sinead O'Connor, um, Soledad. Okay. Soledad O'Brien was was one of the main anchors for CNN um, around 9-11 and up to that time. And I knew that she, as a journalist, had a lot of conviction and she was very, took pride in a lot of her journalism, what she did. But um, I'm not going to get into too much. I remember she had, she had gone on a, she had gone on a trip and she'd come back with a, with with a knee brace. So when she did the talk about her book, she had a knee brace. Yeah. And um my my girlfriend at the time was a PhD student, so we both decided to go to check out her her, her talk. And then at the end we got to speaking with her. And I could just feel like um I wasn't sure if she was already done with the station yet or if she was on her way out and they changed the main anchor, but I could definitely feel this sense of relief um, of her wanting to move on because of that fact. Yeah. That there is this thing where she probably wanted to hold down some truths and they really didn't want her to. So 
Yeah. That, that's been one of my personal experiences with that. And I do still kind of keep in touch with her via email because she does have another show that comes on NBC at 530 in the morning on Sundays and Saturdays. Oh, they, they buried her. Yeah, but um, it's called Matter of Fact. But yeah. she does get her airtime. That's awesome. Um, so, and she's, and, and she's been able to create her own media group to where she has a little more control. And see, a lot of people are doing that. And this is the thing. If you're a, a, an honest journalist and you're being held by a, by a corporation saying, well, you can report on this. And, and like, for instance, CNN and Fox News, I, it's not that they necessarily lie. They just skew the truth. They tell it in their own, you know, through their own filter. But they can't come out and say something that's not true just outright. Um, but they can they can say things that are just slightly slightly skewed, and they can also stop you from saying the things that you they want you to not report on. So it's like when you see something comes out negative about Trump on CNN, you switch to Fox News. They're not talking about that. They're talking about something else. They're just steering the news where they want you to focus with your attention. And so these other people, like you're saying, are going out and creating their own networks, which is great. But so many people are doing it that now you have all kinds of bullshit networks that aren't true at all. And you have the most honest journalists also doing them. So you got to figure out how do you find the person that's telling you the truth versus how do you find somebody? I mean, it's a hard. It's a or, or touching on uh, touching on an area where news isn't really touching as well. Like, you know, hitting middle America. I mean, I've watched the segments and I've seen a little bit more pointed reports going on more detail than usually that would just get brushed over in mainstream. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And also it's how they report on things like that. So the defund the police movement, right? This was a very politically charged statement when people are coming out, defund the police. So a lot of the left extremists were chanting it very loudly. And then Fox News is saying they want to defund the police. How is anybody going to protect their streets? Well, the phrase shouldn't have been defund the police. It should have been defund the drug war. Because what you have is, what is the drug war? How did it start? Why did it start? It started with Nixon wanting to control two groups of people, anti-war hippies and the civil rights movement. And, he, and it's been come out. His own cabinet member came out and said, we did it because you can't arrest people for being black. So you arrest them for things that you can. And then as soon as you, they started the drug war, they were able to kick in the doors in these communities, round people up, make them look like they're drug addicts and, and, and make them look bad. And that's what the new Jim Crow is about. That's what we did. So the defund the police made it sound like that you don't want, you want no crime in order. No, you're still going to have most of the police federal budgets come to, fu to fund the drug war. Well, they don't need that funding anymore. Stop arresting people for using drugs. Just that's enough. And uh, all these deaths and these things that have happened in these cities, a lot of them are related to drug crimes. Like Brianna Taylor, what the, a no-knock warrant? What the fuck is that? That kid had a right to defend his home. You don't know who's in your house. They kick in your door and they have guns. You're going to shoot. And then you realize it's the cops and your girlfriend's dead. This is some fucked up shit. And it's all because you wanted to find some drugs. Yeah, but that's how the news—the news reports on these things—is when you, when you talk about real life issues, they turn it into a political thing. Oh, they you know defund the police, so they so everybody just like now you have these big blue life flag flags. We have one next door to our house. This like this whole new movement of hooray the police, and it's like I don't think we should be. What, what's your take on that? Uh it's an interesting one. I mean, look, growing up in New York, in Chicago. There's, there was a certain thing of all right, good cop and bad cop, from a, from a literal sense and from a meta metaphorical sense. Because I had friends who were cops and in both in both cities, you know what I mean. Um, 
So with that being said, I feel like you take that uniform off and you're at a bar. You're just, you're, you're a person. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I feel like they have a position, but I feel like some people misuse their position. Because they're people. People, there's good people and bad people. Right. So. Right. We go back to the whole Serpico theory. But to jump over, I mean, growing up in New York in the late, in the mid 80s to going into the late 80s, there was definitely a purposeful uh, epidemic bestowed upon the communities, which was the crack epidemic. Yeah. I mean, literally, cops were driving by neighborhoods and certain blocks and just throwing empty crack vials out the out the out the windows so they'd be on the sidewalks and they'd be in your little tree liners and shit like that because you walk in on the ground, a kid sees it. It's curious. Oh, it has these bright colors. It's this little plastic little thing, like, oh, I'm gonna pick it up and look at it. What's yeah. that? And it was just this propaganda of like crack kills, crack kills, but yeah, and then we also have a precinct that got shut down. Because there was corruption going on, yeah. Well, in 1986, and if you look at corruption, most of it comes from there's a legal drug trade. So there's all this money coming into the black market. Cops want some of that money, so it's hard to have, you have to have on, you have honest cops who don't want part of it, and you have other cops that want to go on a vacation, and they're going to get involved. So that a lot of them they start working together, like you said. I mean, and they use it to control too. So when it, then there's a big bust, sometimes it's like, well, we're working with this other one, the other group, gang, whatever. So we're gonna help them out by busting this other one, and they're gonna turn each other in, and it's, and it make they make it look like oh we did a great thing. Also, never once when you arrest a drug kingpin do you do anything good. You actually create a a, a lot of times like a turf war where it's like all right that position's now open. Who wants it? The, whoever you know is, can be the most violent, or whatever can get that position, and that's what happens in an illegal drug war. It happens. It's it's not as bad as it is in Mexico here. It's terrible down there. What's going on? I mean, uh, kind of. Conversation kind of took a, a little left turn there. That's a okay. drug war, but I, I mean, I, you know, I've you, growing up in Chicago, New York, you've seen a, a, probably a way different side than I saw. And like you said, in the '80s, the crack crack was the big thing, and the laws, which a lot of people are saying, you know, they're very racist laws, but they also a lot of black senators were behind these bills too because they weren't looking at it uh, of actually how devastating they would be. They were looking at it as maybe these will help people stop using crack if we make the penalties harsher. But when you have a drug that's the same as cocaine, it's the same drug. It's just one's a smokable version. It's the same exact drug, but the penalty is a hundred times harder. That's I mean, and now it's eighteen. How much Obama dropped it to eighteen? But why not drop it to the same charge? Yeah, and, and also the, and the, and the affordability. Oh yeah, yeah. That's another thing. Cause, yeah, that, was it five or ten dollars for a little you know rock? And I mean, I've smoked a rock before. It was. Uh, it's not as crazy as people think. I mean, it. <laughs> I'll talk about it. I'm being open about my go past ahead, Go ahead, go ahead, go no, ahead. Just, the one time I smoked, the, uh, my buddy, uh, it's kind of a, a long story, but basically I knew he had a crack problem. and Well, I'd heard he had a crack problem. So I showed up at his house unexpectedly just to say what's up, and he opened the door, or actually his girlfriend opened the door, like white as a ghost, just kind of looked at me. He's like, Aaron, what's up? And I'm like, hey, what's up? Like, And she's like, hold on, and closed the door on me. I was like, what the hell? Five minutes go by. Finally, she comes back out. She's like, oh, oh, Aaron, I'm sorry. I forgot, forgot you were here. I was like, all right, I'm just going to leave. I got I, what the rumors were true. So then I get a call a week later from from my friend, and he's like, he's like, um, hey, man, sorry about that. We, you know, we had a crack problem. We, we were clean now. It's been three days. We're like, come over and have some beers. I was like, all right. So I go over there. We start drinking some beers, and he's like, uh, and then this dude shows up, and they go in the back room. So I'm like, all right, I know what this is. 
and and how they work is they, they oh you quit using no problem well thanks for your business here's a little bit for free just if you ever want it then they smoke it and they go can I get some on the front sure here's some more and now you owe me that money next week it's just this that's how they get you so he comes back out of the room and we had just ordered some to go food he's like hey take my car and go get that to go food I'll, I'll just be a minute I'm like all right man I'm kind of like sketched out so I take his car I don't have a driver's license I'm like 19. I go get a DUI immediately. We've been drinking, and he had a missing tail light. I wasn't even that drunk, but got a DUI. This is back when I was 19. The DUI laws were a little different. I got it all dropped by prayer for judgment. It's like a Christian law in the Bible belt. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I get back. I get bailed out of jail that night. It's another thing that you can't do now. You get out the same night. They, they process you. You don't actually spend any time in a cell. My buddy picked me up. So I went back. He's like, your car's an impound, and I got a DUI. And he's like, I, he felt so bad. He's like, here. And he make, he pulled out a cray full of, tra- uh, full of crack and was like, make it up to you. And I was like, fuck it, man. I'll smoke crack with you tonight. I'm just got a DUI. <laughs> so he sat there and smoked all that. Now, with that amount, though, I did. I was. It was definitely an intense, uh, like, a, you know, adrenaline rush, very intense. And it was not enjoyable when I wanted to go to sleep. I was like, oh, man. It, kept, like, it was just intense. But anyway, have you ever smoked it? No comment. No comment. Understood. Um, yeah, I've only done that a few times. Mostly uh, cocaine was our thing. If we did, I don't even do that anymore. I'm just not, not a fan. Also, that shit can be deadly now. There's fentanyl in it. I had a buddy that, that just do, does, likes to do a little blow here and there. He ended up in the hospital. Yeah. So um, drugs are dangerous. You can buy, I'm talking about that in my special. If you are using drugs and using street drugs, you can buy fentanyl test kits on Amazon for cheap and just test your cocaine. You don't want to end up in the hospital or dead. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, let's see. Chicago. Now, there was like the shift in probably around 89, 90, where there were, there was a rival gang that ran the suburbs that were in the suburbs already. Um, um, and then there ended up being closings of projects in Chicago to where people were getting displaced. And they did this huge, huge move of people that were from a rival gang into the suburbs, into the same general area. So then you had... So you, put the, you brought the war, you brought them all to the same Yeah, space. so basically what you've got and without naming any specific names, you've got a specific Latino, predominantly Latino gang already out there in the suburbs and in the city. And then you move one other gang that does know, knows nothing of the suburbs into the suburbs, into one of the richest neighborhoods in Chicago suburbs and western suburbs. A, city, a town over from another rival gang. So obviously with that, heroin's going to come into the city. Yeah. Suburban kids are going to get turned on to it. And if they can't get it from then, then they're driving out to the west side of Chicago to get it. So many kids after my, let's just say, when I was in high school, pot, X, you know, acid, that sort of thing was, all right, you were, people are messing around with that stuff. But then you got, couple of the goth kids messing with the down yeah you know what i mean which is which is really really secretive you wouldn't really see it but you knew it was around right right? 
But later, after our class kind of graduated, there was just this like abundance of kids that were going to raves because the rave scene had already kind of blown and up. And this was in the 90s? This is in the 90s. Yeah, like the rave scenes were crazy back like then. Three th- like 93, 94. Like, there was just like this whole generation after our group of kids graduated from high school that were a little bit more intellectual and a little bit more like, all right, we got our pinky on the on the edge of the cliff. These kids had their whole two feet dangling like after yeah. us yeah there was a lot of ods there's a lot of kids that were you know they they didn't even know what their parents did for you know for professions it is no my dad comes home and comes back to work on the train when these a lot of kids were getting thrown into um 30-day programs because their parents didn't know what to do with them next thing you know you got a bunch of kids on ritalin a bunch of kids on dexedrine a bunch of kids on What's the other one? Adderall. Or oh, whatever. yeah, and that's a whole other issue that's going on with the prescri- pharmaceutical companies want to make money. So natural remedies, they don't want. Right. They, well, actually, going back to, I wanted to bring this up when we were talking about um, with your mom and with the, the, the cocktails that they prescribe people. It's, um, it's concerning to me that people, and they do this with kids, giving kids Adderall. There are exceptions where I think they, it might be a good drug for certain kids with a certain amount of ADD. But for the most part, it's just, ah, your kid's not paying attention to school. That's because he needs this. No, it's because he's bored because he's at school. That's just that's what it's about. But um, I have a friend that when you said the cocktail of uh, of medications, I went over to their house and and on the counter they have all these prescription meds. Like, well, and, and they're like, well, they're bipolar. It's like I have bipolar medication. Oh, I just found out I'm ADD. Like you're, you're 38 years old and you just found out you're ADD. Well. And also ADD, the symptoms of ADD mimic bipolar. I was like, I'm pretty sure a doctor is just giving you like, and whatever you want. And here's the thing. We don't understand consciousness, right? That science does not know what consciousness is. We know that it, our brain creates, we think our brain creates it. We don't even know if that's 100% true. But we have all these neurotransmitters that are floating around doing their thing. And that's what creates this consciousness. So then we just give all these different pills that just make them do different things and just like, oh, we'll try a little of this, try a little of that. We're going to balance you out. They're just messing around with your scramble in your brain. Right. It's dangerous. So to keep you keep you in the fold of needing something. Yeah, they want that's what it, they're making money on you. And you have to always understand that. Not to say that there aren't some of these drugs that help. Again, my nephew's on Adderall and he was so he's so, he's autistic though and he had this problem where he, he couldn't focus all he would scream in loud places and like he was just really erratic. Adderall helped him. But that's not a normal situation. My, ne- my next door neighbor growing up was on Ritalin. He was a normal kid, but he would he would get too excited, and his mom would be like, "Now, Jeffrey, I'm gonna you're gonna take your medicine if you keep acting up. I don't want." And he would get scared. I don't want to take that. I don't want to take that. Okay. He hated it. And then he'd start acting up again. That's it. You're taking it. She'd make him take it, and, and then he would change. He'd be like, "I don't really feel like hanging out anymore." I'm like, "All right, man. Sad. That's messed. <laughs> that's yeah. messed up. It's like I can't handle my kid. He's a brat. Take this. Give him a drum set." Yeah, well, <laughs> electric kit with headphones. Yeah, 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 or something to 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 get out the you know. That's actually yeah, a great idea, and and also, I think something parents don't think about enough when they give their kids drum sets is get an electric kit. You don't want your kid learning to have drums. I mean, some parents are just cool with it, and that's awesome. You should if you should be cool with it, but that it's a lot of racket. Like a guitar yeah. center when you, when you go shopping there, someone's on the drum kit. I was I asked one of the people working there, I was like, do you not get tired of hearing these songs and guitar all day? Like, nah, you get used to it. They're like, it's the drums that gets you. <laughs> yeah, it's the drums that get you. Exactly. So, I mean... we got, well, This is a good way segue into music, because you're... So what projects are you working on right now? Oh, uh, right now, um, we just got... We got Vagabond Blasphemy out there. 
And basically, with Singular Fashion, I'm working on a new EP right now. Very cool. something, something short and sweet. Um, and that's, How many songs are you thinking? Um, probably six. Six songs? I think it's just six. And I'm just going to leave it at that. EP. Yeah, yeah. I always end up doing EPs and end up doing full lengths. I just feel like yeah. I'm just going to do something that's like a, just more of a segue into the new direction. That's cool. Yeah. So and so, can people listen to your stuff right now, or is it? Yeah, wait, I mean, wait, we've wait, got wait. we've got two albums out. Which first one is the gray area, and then um, I put another single out in between that called "Old the Moon Dog," which "Old the Moon Dog" is on the second release, which is "Vagabond Blasphemy." Very cool. Um, Vagabond Blasphemy. How would you come up with that name? <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, well, I was I was in a hip hop group in. Uh, in Chicago for a very short while with these cats and I actually was playing guitar with them when they when they would do live and or go live and the, the, the project was called the Vagabond Convention. Gotcha. So I kinda like I always liked that that surname because it was just like this weird group of guys that were just dope and they brought me into the fold because I was more of a rock guy. Yeah. And it was like we're all vagabonds. So it was like, all right, cool, Vagabond Convention. Well how I came up with that name, um, I, I don't know. I guess probably it's based on the fact that, like, there's a, there's a chronology that I have that whether there's a record label, whether there's major, minor, independent stuff going on or, have, or has gone on in my life, it doesn't really matter. There's a story here. There's a travel that's gone on. There's a journey that's happened that... Yeah. It's allowed me to be a part of many different places and almost kind of like a nomad in a sense. Whereas um, being in Florida, I've spent I've spent pretty good time evenly on both coasts. Yeah. Um, Where at on the other coast? Miami. Um, Miami. Yeah. yeah, Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. And I felt like when I came down from Chicago... Um, it was weird. I really didn't feel like I had to like adjust too much. Um, let's just put it that way. Really? Um, oh, oh, you mean from just from the other? Country? Just from Chicago to to Miami. I just I, I felt I got you. as a major city in the country. Um, it just felt like I belonged because a I have both you know American roots and also Caribbean South American roots. So it was just like it made the most sense. For me at the time to to cruise down there and yeah. I, I did plenty of research i love the music scene there which whether whether it was you know electronic caribbean stuff international stuff anything that was coming out of any of the south american countries it, it definitely intrigued me and yeah i felt like i could carve a little a little piece when i when i got there and i found the tribe you know yeah whereas in very much blunt honesty, out of love, I'm just gonna say that because I have been here for eight years, I've come here with history, and I've, my brother has as well. So we've come here to decide to like kind of drop the anchor. My brother just left to go to Colorado, but I've stayed here now eight years. And do you like it here? I, I, you know what, I do. Yeah, I do like it here, but I've, I've, I've met, you know, creatively, I've met some resistance that's have caused. Some some reclusion in a sense. Well, the, the music here scene here is almost non-existent. I mean, I don't knock it. I don't knock. There, I don't really. There's there's oh, there's some okay acts yeah. that I've seen that. Are, but honestly, if they want to make it, they need to get out of here. Right. I mean, right. I don't know. Fort Myers is just 
it, it's, a, it's a cover scene. That's another thing. It's all cover bands. That's what I do. It's how I make my money, and sure. I, I hate doing that. But sure. What I hate about that is I feel like then when I'm off work, I don't feel like playing. I don't feel like writing because I've been playing guitar for four hours, but I'm playing other people's stuff. And I, I pepper in my own songs, and nobody claps or cares. They want, they're drunk. They want to hear stuff they know. That's just how the, the crowd is. And that's, and that's to no fault of the artist. Like, I want to clarify that. There's a lot of guys here that I respect because that's what they do. I choose to have the dichotomy of working in another field, which is a culinary and hospitality industry and production industry, because I don't want to burn out. Yeah, you know what I mean, and that's just I, that's I just my that's just my choice. So, like, my I I totally respect everybody making their dollar, but on the other hand, what I will be blunt about and be merciless about is the fact that these venues here play the game. Yeah, they're they're the culprit. Now, will you walk into any of these venues and make sure that out of out of a hundred percent? How, how much of that 100% are actually paying their royalty dues? Well, they do. All the places I play, they do pay, uh, was it BMI or whatever they have to pay? It's BMI. But I, I wonder, here's the thing, because I don't play all the, the, the stuff that most people are playing. I play some of it if it's requested. Right. But I play Bright Eyes and Blind Melon. I guarantee those artists aren't getting a penny from what, from what they're paying. Right. I don't know how the BMI does it, but how do they figure out what songs I'm covering? I think I, from what I from what I know, I guess what they do is they break it down in each venue, whether it's a restaurant, a live music venue, or whatever. Even if a restaurant's playing music on a playlist, they have to pay into dues. Yeah, I just wonder if, if they base it on what's being played on the radio. They just assume that's what we're playing and that they're getting that money. Mm-mm. It's, it's, I think... There's a certain percentage that's compartmentalized for venues that they have to pay dues, and those dues get divvied out amongst if you're registered with whichever um, composer society, be it BMI, CSAC, or ASCAP. Gotcha. Um, but I'm just saying, like some of the artists I play that are obscure are not seeing any of that money because they, they, they don't. You know, nobody comes out to check my playlist to see what artists they want to send money to, which right. they couldn't find it. Like there wouldn't be feasible for them to go to every single person and find every single list it's not possible right but i don't know i don't have to pay the, the thing so i'll let them worry about that but um it is it is a weird it's almost like because i listen to a lot of comedians and they talk about how you know if you steal somebody else's joke that's like the worst thing you could ever do like you're a hack even if it's close and i'm like i'm basically a hack for a profession like i'm i'm it's different with music because artists cover people they always have the beatles started as a cover band so it's not the same but I kind of feel that way. It's like I gave up what I wanted to do so that I could play other people's music to make money on it, and that kind of sucks. And I'm, I'm actually almost wishing I would have stayed and like because I've served and bartended too. I was like, I wish I would have stayed stayed that route. But it, for a while there, it was just so much easier to be like, I'll just play music and it'll be great. Now I'm, I'm trying. So I'm trying to do this podcast. I'm trying to veer my way out of doing covers. I met I met a booking guy who's like, I do booking. Do you have a card? I was like, I don't have a card. He's like, Well, what's your number? I was like, I'm not looking for gigs right now. He's like, You're not. And I was like, I'm actually trying to get out of this business. He was shocked. He's like, Nobody wants out of this. This is a great business. I was like, I want out. <laughs> like just. Well, like I said, I mean, I don't knock anybody for how they make their money, but on the one, on the other hand, like surrounding this area, there's so much other shit going on. You go to Tampa. You go to Sarasota. Like, yeah. Um. Yeah, you're 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 seeing a little bit more support for original music and venues that are, are that are available. Kate Coral is getting okay. They have it's some getting there. Uh, well, Nice Guys is great. They have 
they'll have cover bands, but it won't be like a cover band. They'll be like, we're a Nirvana tribute band. It'll be these young kids doing Nirvana songs. Like, That's different. That's cool. And then they have original acts. They do comedy nights. Ollie's, that record store there, mm -hmm. um, they, they do uh, her friend, the all original punk band. They did three different bands played, all punk songs. And that was cool. And then I've seen Rackham's do some cool stuff. You played Rackham's. Yeah. Yeah, I've done Rackham's with another project a couple of months back. But like, you know, like again, like it's 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 emerging, but yet it's taken a while. Yeah. You know, so what happens with that is there becomes a reclusion. Whereas uh being in the area, the area is great, it's a lot of a lot of growth, but it's still centralized to where again there's other parts in the Southeast region that can be strategically utilized as well. You've yeah. got Atlanta, yep. North Carolina, you've got Savannah, you've got Northern Florida. Like it's, it's, it's a good area to be. Yeah. It's a good area to be. And I mean, is New Orleans, would you consider that Southeast? Yeah. Yeah. A little, I mean, a little bit. I mean, within the region, Southeast region. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Not, New Orleans is my favorite city. I've never been to Atlanta as an adult. I lived there when I was 19 for a short time, and I didn't really know the city. So, and I lived so close to there. My grandparents lived there, but we, we were always in the suburbs. So that's a city that I've really wanted to go back and visit because I know a lot of musicians that I like say it's the best city in the Southeast. Um, John Mayer picked that out of all the cities he went. Um, Jack White picked Nashville. And I tell you, Nashville is a pretty cool city, but everybody said it's not all country, but when I went, it was all country. Like it, everybody's like, it's all different kinds of music. Don't let them tell you. It's all different kinds of styles of music played as country. Like it might be covering Metallica, but they got a banjo and they're, you know, it's it's still a cool city though. I'm not knocking Nashville at all. And some good country there too. Good country you don't hear on the radio anymore. Sorry, country fans, but your music's awful. On the radio, right? The, that, that pandering, my boots and my, you know, spread solo cup crap. Like, ah, can't stand it. You know what? I just watched the other night or just two nights ago and I thought it was incredible because it's just a great reminder of kind of what we're talking about and being the outsiders. And that's what I was trying to cumulatively say earlier. Like, I feel like an outsider sometimes, but I can I can bring some things to the table, but I'm going to hold my trunk closed until people are ready. You know what I yeah. mean? So that's just kind of where that where that goes. But Last night, I, I, you know, knowing that we were going to do this podcast, I, I found out that the Velvet Underground uh, podcast or, or documentary was just released on Apple TV. Oh, hell yeah. And it's incredible. And there was a quote in there, this kid that was hanging out around those guys when he was 15, when they were like a little older than him. And he said they were very generous people. I mean, they, yeah, they dressed in black and they were gloomy, but they were really proactive about what was going on at the times, even before they even touched L.A., which was the power, flower power movement going yeah. on, right? But what he did say was, he was like, just because of the mood that they set with the music, he was attracted to that because someone else bought the record, didn't like it, he traded a record for it back at the time, and he's like, I like this, and he's like, you know what? The first thing he said was, I think these people will understand me. You're talking about Lou Reed? No, not yet. But I'm talking about this, this person that was speaking of the Velvet Underground. Oh, I gotcha, I gotcha. Like, I can't remember his name specifically. I'd have to go back and watch it again. Um, but he's, he basically he stated, like, just because of the mood and the tonalities that they were using that were kind of a, a, a contradiction of what was, what was hip at the time. I almost think they were the first punks. I mean... 
Yeah. And Lou Reed, I mean, that, the, I, I read his autobiography, or no, it wasn't autobiography, but his biography, and he said, uh, or they said, Metal Machine Music, is that what it's called? That album he had? A ladder solo record that he did. It was by a solo record, but it was all just noise. The whole album was just distortion and feedback, and that's all it was. No nothing, and they and he actually released it on the label. Of course, they hated him for it, and and it was never reviewed as anything good. But they said that was the most punk rock thing. This is before punk rock. Like that's the, like, punk, I mean, that's what punk rock is. It's like I'm not going to follow your rules. Your label's trying to tell me to do it this way. Well, then here's what you're going to get. Like in Velvet Underground, they were breaking rules back then. They were. Um, I know that Andy Warhol wanted Nico really bad to try to make it a more of a pop thing, and he did not. Uh, Lou Reed did not want Nico in that band. That's why. That's why they were called Velvet Underground and Nico, because he's like, she's not in the band. She's separate. Yeah, uh, on a couple of the albums, but I mean, I th- I think that what what I liked about seeing that documentary again and bringing to the table now is that tools. I think there's a certain thing that happens where. Certain people may have had access to, you know, better equipment or better studios or whatever, what have you. I think those guys really decided to deconstruct certain things, but then also amplify their shows with the incorporation of Andy Warhol, with the incorporation of of, of different mediums, with the incorporation of tricking out visuals and i'm going to tell you some of the visuals that they were doing back then without the tools that we have now leave skid marks and some of the shit that's going on right now visually i then my personal i I agree and also the back then it was it was like real everything that they did had actually be real like it wasn't everything's digital now but like with what with all the effects you hear on the beatles records they were doing those they had to make those effects happen now it's just click, click, blah, blah, which is way easier. But I mean, there's something authentic that we're missing from that time. Do you, do you ever feel like you were born in the wrong decade? Like, um, Yeah, I mean, I was born in 75, so I, I wish I was born maybe maybe 10 years earlier. Yeah, 10 or I, I would say 20. Yeah, I mean, even 20 years is earlier. It, to be to be coming up or to be like 17 or 18, right around 67? Yeah, yeah, love. yeah, yeah. I would have, I would have, I would have loved to be there, but I felt there was just, there was just enough of a resemblance of that, or I should say, residue of that, for lack of a better term, in the household. So it's definitely implanted. You know what I mean? And caught enough of the '70s to going into the '80s and going into the next decade, which was the '90s, and then going into the millennium. I feel like seeing that transgression. Has given me strength within the digital domain now. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I wish I had tape. I wish I had an echo class. But I you know. know what? I look at I look at the digital my my digital setup at the house. I've got two uh two DAWs and I just look at them as just two digital captures. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I try to I kind of, I kind of like my flaws. I like, I like the things that are raw. I like the bleed. I like to incorporate that stuff because yeah. you can. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, if you get a perfect take, you get a perfect take. But you know what? If you get a take that has a little more oomph behind it, that might have a couple of little skips in it. So what? Yeah, I think Jack White was talking about that. He said he doesn't take them out because like that's that's what makes us human. Those little things yeah. adds that humanity in it. 
Right. That's why when I listen to a perfectly produced pop song, it turns me off. I'm like, yeah, you, you sang that, but after how many takes and with what kind of uh, stuff on your voice, it's not human anymore. It's too perfect. I mean, some of the songs are good, but it's just too perfect. Velvet Underground was the opposite of that, right? None of it was perfect. None of, like if it was perfect, they'd retake it to make it not perfect. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, we do this dance all the time, man. There's just this dance of like, when do you let something go? You know what I mean? When do you hand it over? Yeah. You know? And it's, it's, a, it's a fine line, but at the same time, I refuse personally as an artist to, to, to be overly perfectionist. I just, I have a point. I have a breaking point where I, there's a day where I just go, all right, this is it. I might have butterflies in my stomach. Hey, I might, I might, I might be approached by some can, some cancel culture as people that, you know, may think a certain way, but hey, are you putting records out? Yeah. I mean, are you, do you know the steps? Do you know, do you know how to be patient and not release something until it's ready? Because that, that, there's a dance there. You it know? definitely is. And also, this, uh, Stephen Pressfield calls it, you know, resistance. And resistance comes in strongest right before it's ready to release. Because you're like, well, I, in, I've, I've not released any, I, I mean, I have stuff on SoundCloud, but I've not released an album. My whole life been in bands. But every time that project started getting put together, I started thinking, it's not good enough. I'm writing better stuff now. So I'd move on from that. And it just, that kept happening throughout my whole life playing music. So I don't have anything finished. And the podcast was going to be the same way when I started it. But I was like, not going to let it happen to this. I just set a date and like, this is your date to release. Started telling people it would be released. And I made sure it happened and I released it. And it's not perfect and it's not going to be. My conversations, I, you know, I stumble on words. I'm these are going to happen. That's, that's what life is. But I wish I had that, taken that with music when I was younger and I, I didn't. You know, like, I mean, you grew up in a city with a music scene like Chicago. That's a, like you, I'm sure you got to see all kinds of and work with. You, know, you get a lot, a lot of creativity that you have probably came from the artists that you got to play with and hang with. And the ones that I was watching, watching while I was washing glasses at the bar I worked. Yeah, yeah. very lucky. You know what I mean? I mean, so to touch to to go back on what we were talking about earlier, um, that experience is what's kept me calm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there's there's a lot of um there's a lot to offer there historically, like I said, but it's in the vault. It's not something to be used as like a name drop. Right. But it's stuff that I can use personally for my own my own archives or where I wanna okay, let me refer to this, refer to that or you know what I mean? Right. So there's enough there. Um so I don't know. I guess I guess I have more open arms than people realize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great thing to have that from you know from your influence perspective thing because I grew up in Charlotte. There was it was metal. It was a very metal scene when I grew up. Heavy bands, and I was influenced by a lot of that. And it's hard for me to shed some of those early influences, even though I'm not writing that music. And my my melodies will start coming in dark, like have a little tool and Deftones in there, which it's cool, but not for what I'm trying to do. I don't I don't need that influence in there. But the early influence is hard to shed. They're hard to shake. Yeah, They're hard yeah. to shake, and they and they stick with you, and they get, they kind of morph a little bit too. They do morph, and sometimes in a really cool way. I mean, some of my aspects of what I do I like, but some of it I'm like I'll listen to it later. I'm like, oh, that that's too much of that same kind of '90s sound that I'm not able to to get out of. Which some of it's awesome. You know, some of those '90s sounds were really cool. Some of them, it, the '90s kind of started awesome, like it was great, and then it just something happened, and it just I feel like the '90s ended badly. I think. I think that happens every decade. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think that happens every decade because there's always something that 
I mean, we can go back to the time period you were talking about. Well, the 60s, though, I mean, Sgt. Pepper's came out in 69. That's like the pinnacle. Like the, it, That decade ended. 66. Oh, is it 66? More 66, 67. 67. 67. Yeah, you're right. Back to they probably had three albums. Or, well, they released like one or two albums a year, and then they just, well, they stopped. I guess 69 was their last album. No? 69, 70. Because uh, Gabby Road would have came out in... 70, 70, 71? And then Let It Be came out after, but they recorded it before. At Abbey Road. But they were all pretty much done by 70. They were. But I still think the 60s ended pretty strong. The 70s, the same thing happened in the 70s, though, right? Like you have your, because your, you start to see a switch in music. You have your Zeppelin and all that happened in the 70s. And then you start getting into your ACDCs and those kind of, which I don't know if you like ACDCs. Kevin loves them. I don't like ACDC. I like ACDC yeah, I think for what they are. I, I just don't, I don't think I, I don't get the... I, the well, see, also, I, I, hate, I did not grow up with any big hair band music. I, Kurt Cobain was when I came into the, you know, listening to music. So all these hair bands, I didn't get it. This, I, I, I don't know. Did you get, were you into those? I mean, all right. I came around with a lot of guitars with Ozzy, Blizzard of Oz. So, I mean... I like Ozzy. Though. Randy Rhodes. So anything after Randy Rhodes... Obviously, being into guitar, you're going to look at all the guitar gods at the time, like MTV, all the cool guitars, Kramers, Jacksons. Like, I was into it all. I was into checking everybody out and, com- and comparing everybody. But I got more I got more interested in shit when you saw bands like Bang Tango or The Cult getting some getting some time on MTV. And those bands were the guys that were metal, but they were a little goth, but they were a little... Kind of Cynthia as well, Queen Drake. I was I was more into that stuff. Yeah, I loved Anthrax. I loved Primus. Saw those guys a bunch of times. I was also into hip hop at the same time, as well as being in electronic music. So it was a sponge for everything. Yeah. And of course, pop too. I mean, there's certain pop I loved. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I guess I was pretty pretty fortunate to be a sponge and just understand music and understand the music yeah. business from an early age. Just be able to, to to decipher something and be like, all right, this is cool. I might not like it, but I'll listen to it because I like that drum part or I like that vocal part. I might not be a fan of it, but I was a I was already a music listener. Yeah, yeah. So I would give things, I would give things a little bit more of a listen than as opposed to oh, oh, I like this and I wear this, so I can't like that. Yeah, yeah. Which I kind of feel I've. I feel like that's a little bit more prevalent now than it was in any time that I was developing. Yeah, definitely. When I was a kid, I you know, I, the baggy jeans, skateboard, chain wallet. So I listened to metal and I listened to rock, but I you know I didn't listen to country. I would have been like, oh, I'm not listening to that. But he did listen to rap. I mean, that was Wu Tang was fucking huge. Uh, so definitely. Also, when I grew up, it was about half and half. Like my, half my friends dressed like. You know that and listen to that music. I dressed like this, but we all listen to the same music. If I put in Slipknot, they were gonna listen. Yeah, check if they it put out. in Tupac, I'm gonna listen. Right. So those, but other other than those two genres, everything else was out. And um, I, I I hated country. And then I started hearing good country as I got older. And I'm like, country's a great genre. Like there's nothing wrong with it. It's just I it didn't click with what I was, you know, what I thought I what I thought it was. We try to create images of ourselves and what we're who we're supposed to be, and then we let that direct. But it's kind of ridiculous, but as children, that's what we did at least. Yeah. But um, you ever written a country song? I actually had one song that is on 
Vagabond Blasphemy that a country artist wanted to redo. Really? But I I lost touch with them. And they're local here. And they're from a pretty pretty prevalent country family from from Tennessee. Oh yeah. Yeah. But um I mean I mean some of the acoustic stuff I do has kind of like that southwestern kind of road roadhouse kind of feel. That's cool, yeah. Just like little touches of it. That yeah, I mean, kind of trippy southwestern kind of vibe. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a cool sound. I like that too. And really, that's what rock came from, right? It was blues with pop, and then a little bit of that country western, just a little bit of it. And that's kind of the where you get rock and roll from. And the testimonials and the storytelling. Oh yeah, and then of course it evolved and evolved, and then you when you listen to uh, like Lead Belly, and then you listen to Pantera, it's hard to be like. That's the same. Came from the same thing. It did, but it's just a long evolution. To Pantera is actually a bad example because you can hear it a little more than them. I'm trying to think of like like Tool. I mean, their new sound is so it's not blues at all. It's math metal, but it came from that though. I mean, it all came goes back. Black Sabbath was definitely blues, but yes, and and they're a band that would be a, a link in the chain from blues, Black Sabbath, Tool, and that's you know, but they it evolves, it changes. Music's. I wonder where music's gonna go now because I feel like. Rock and roll is it's it's getting a little stale, and I don't know if it's going to be an emergence of something new, some new sound. Maybe you know what you're doing comes out something like different. But the thing is, there's not a lot in the radio. The radio, the radio is stale. Maybe the radio is going out. People are streaming now. Maybe FM just kind of goes away. <laughs> it's an interesting question, uh, or an, an interesting uh, curiosity, I should say, because. I can only name a few bands right now that really, really turn me on, and that's all just based on opinion. Right. But it's it's more about okay, who's getting me? Who's got the attitude? Who? And again, it goes back to that whole thing of when you look at a journalist, are they speaking with conviction, or right. are they are they are they are they holding back something because they know more? Like right. I could literally look at music videos right now. And look at a band that's maybe making their debut on a talk show. Doesn't matter which one. Right. And I can really feel their energy, whether they're whether they taped it or not. Like it doesn't matter. I feel their energy on stage. I can look at them and tell. Like I mean, I saw my boys Torch, and I've known them vaguely from from Miami. They ended up moving to Atlanta. When I saw those guys on Fallon, Torch, the band that used to play here. Yeah. I, I, no, no, not not the cover band Torch here. Okay, I there's was like, an, there's a different band. All right, yeah, like, those no, guys. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I really know those guys. No, there's another like really like they they have like they use three heavy strings and they tune them to A. All of them they have like a really really huge heavy detuned, heavy distorted sound. They're called Torch. They're called Torch, but like, and I saw them and they had a really poppy song. The first song they played, the second song they played was was straight up noise, like yeah. straight up. Big muff, distortion, like, right? Yeah. But when I saw them, it's, and it, it's probably because I've I've seen them live before, and I, I you know I've hung out vaguely with them and been in the same room in passing, but they penetrated me because you know what? They didn't have that veil of unsureness when they are up there. Yeah. I can sense that shit, like on with now like 
I don't know what it is. If this is just just this weird veil there was, but you wouldn't really feel it back in the sixties or seventies. They had music videos, they had live performances like Mike Peel and everything. There's just something there now. I don't know if it's something to do with the sink being off or whatever. I don't know, but I can really feel like this like millisecond of a delay to where you can you're not capturing the full full essence. Yeah, does that make sense? I'm not. I don't think I'm following the delay thing. I don't know what it is. There's like a veil there um, where you can really feel if people are, have been on stage before, oh, if they gosh, haven't yeah, been yeah. on stage or whatever. Yeah, well, like for Kurt Cobain, when you watched him go on SNL, it was his first time on SNL. He, he'd played so many shows. You could see it. he was just, he, he was himself. He didn't feel any, he just gave it his all. That's what I'm, it. that's what I'm getting at. I can feel this apprehension. I don't care how big the star is. I don't care if it's Good Morning America during their, you know, that little show they do where they play three songs or today's show, I can feel it. Yeah. I can I can tell who is not even legit, like who is really feeling free yeah. on stage. Like a Michael Stipe and or Tom York's a good example, someone who gets up there and feels every all the music around him. Right. So I think uh without without hurting anyone's feelings, I just feel like there's just been way too much it's just my opinion, and, and take it back. And maybe it's a reminder of for people that don't have that reference point of what what came before. Seeing a lot of you know the Jimmy Page, slung low, you know, with the you know the winged winged collar shirts, and that's cool. I mean, that's great. Um, and then you're seeing a lot of the cut off black t shirts with the tattoos thing. I mean, there's a little bit more in the middle there still. I guess is what I'm getting at. I guess what I'm trying to say is that rock has many faces and many uh, many timbers. You know what I mean? But I feel like there shouldn't be this, uh, oh, you're this or you're from here. You should listen to this. Like, that's just something I didn't grow up around. I was a sponge. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or give something a shot that wasn't, you know, familiar to your eyes. Yeah. No. Or, or the or the combination, you know? Yeah, there's, I was trying to think of the saying, like, if it doesn't scare you, then, you know, you, you, you got to do something that you're afraid to do, and that, that's how you grow. And right. If you go the route that you're supposed to go, I'm a skateboard kid, I listen to punk music, and that's all I listen to, then you're not going to grow from there. You can be that person, that's fine. But take, you know, take some challenges, and it's, I mean, that's what life's all about. That's what skateboarding's about, right? Yeah. It, Chop into the half pipe. You might you might break your arm, but you might learn something. You might learn something. <laughs> never do that do that move again or what have you. Yeah. Uh, last time I dropped it on a half pipe, I was 22, and I learned don't drop. To, you're done skateboarding. It's your days are over. Because you know when you drop in. Did you ever see used to skateboard? I wasn't a big skateboarder. No. I was more of a street like street racquetball guy. Oh <laughs> yeah, ball paddle ball that sort of thing, uh, which is still cool. you know. Playing on cement courts. Yeah, was that that was a big thing up there? That was a big thing in New York. Yeah, paddle ball and handball. Gotcha. Like, yeah, I just remember we. So when you drop it in the half pipe, the idea was you got to lean into it. Like you want to you want to be right with your board, so you lean in. So I over leaned when I was like, I remember how to do this. It had been like three years since I skateboarded. Right. I had half pipe. I just over leaned and just smacked them on the ground. I was like, all right, I'm done. I got up all like up. Oh. Because <laughs> you got that velocity and the control of the of the your weight on that board, and then right. Yeah. It's never it was never really my thing. 
Yeah, it was big where I grew up. I didn't do it for too long. Um, I broke my finger. I broke my pinky, and still today when I play guitar, that pinky doesn't quite work right. Like it's just that's one little thing. But yeah. that's, lucky that's all I've ever broke. I mean, I have friends who get their, all, lose all their front teeth because their skateboard came back and hit them in the mouth. It's a dangerous sport. <laughs> <laughs> so what else, man? Um, I don't know. We can talk about whatever, or we can wrap it up and go have a beer. What have got? Oh, we, let's we do a little more. Do time. a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, throw some questions. I mean, I don't really know your format, so I'm so, just kind of well, just going. I'm kind of like, learning too, because my, my format's you know the war on drugs, but not every podcast is going to be directly about that because sometimes it's going to have a conversation about music. Sure. But um, drugs were a big part of my musical growth because I had this. I think the '90s, a lot of people had this idea, and Kurt Cobain hated this too because he's like the media was telling everybody about his heroin problems. So he would have people at his shows. Kids would come up. Like it's happened in Europe where they were freebasing heroin and like Kurt hit it like 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 they're passing a joint and Kurt was like, This is like I don't want to influence people to do these drugs. He was like, I hate my heroin addiction, it's gonna kill me. And um but I think I also grew up with that drugs are cool, you have to be sad and do drugs to write good music, which is not true at all. No, the idea is the happier you are, the better their songs are gonna be. You don't need to be in a dark place to write good music. No. But that's the nineties mentality, that's what we kinda had. So I remember I was in a band once with this guy Rusty and me and the guitar player were doing smoking a joint or something and he was like hey guys i have an idea like what if we did this whole project with no drugs like let's just no drugs at practice and i thought he was out of his mind i was like let's i have an idea let's do it with more drugs that was my mentality and the thing is he would he was right that's why that band didn't work because we were like it's all about getting fucked up no it should be about making music mm -hmm. the people that get messed up on drugs is after they get the success if they would have been burnt out before they were successful they wouldn't have got successful so there's that whole. I think a lot of musicians have that mentality. Have you have you you've been in a lot of bands and do you have you seen a lot of drug use like that or do you see like how, what's your take on that? I've seen quite a bit. I've seen a lot. Um, and not to mention any names, but going in Chicago, like I mean, cocaine was cocaine was around. Oh yeah, quite a bit. But then there was also, you know, a certain sector that would deal with the down. I call it never really saw it it would be you know peripheral um and then of course weed i like i personally when i'm in a creative mode i the other shit other than green i love weed like yeah. i love weed like as far as when i'm writing when i'm recording um it's just a great tool i have around because it just keeps me at a plateau but when i get to when I actually get to the literal part of what I do, which is writing lyrics and and constructing stuff, I try to stay as clear-headed as I possibly can. Really? Um, to receive. I, and I feel you on that. I, I use weed, though. I, I use, I call it microdosing weed. There's one or two hits when I'm writing lyrics. Mm -hmm. Or definitely when I'm coming up with music. I mean, pot to me has been the best creative force. And, it's, and that's something you can, I think... Everybody, should, you shouldn't be afraid to use that. I'm talking about getting hammered drunk and taking pills and cocaine and all that crap. Yeah. But and, and I've never written a good song on cocaine. You, you get stuck on one line all night. Like, oh, this line's got to be perfect, and then you just well, you can hear that shit, man. Like, if you listen to a few records, man, I'm like, I can I can listen to some records in the '80s, from the '80s especially. I can yeah. tell. You can tell that there's just a lot of cocaine in the room. <laughs> the whole the whole '80s sound to me is that's what cocaine sounds like. That. 
Wow. And then the high pitched screaming voice and then spandex. Like this is all a cocaine idea. I'm pretty sure that that and it's just you could just feel the rush. Like there's always a like the shit sounds like there's a rush to it. Like they got to get it out. They got to crank it out because the. The labels coming by here at eight in the morning, and they want it. They want to be able to release it and send it to marketing. You can hear that anxiety. <laughs> you can literally hear the anxiety on a record from the eighties. Like just, just again that deciphering thing that I, that that thing I think I have. Um, <laughs> but anyway, like I mean, as far as as far as going back to what you're asking me about being, you know, being creative and using drugs, like I feel like. It can for me it's a hindrance. Like I just can't have a lot of drugs around. Like cannot. Yeah. Like especially like there's not always an engineer around for me when I'm when I'm doing my thing. Like I'm kind of wearing many many hats like a madman. I don't right. want anybody to see that shit. Like it's crazy. It's like Jekyll and Hyde going on like in a lab basically. So I have to be as clear headed and have enough energy to get through three four hours. You yeah. know naturally. Yeah. Yeah. You know. No, and that's the best way to do it. If you use cocaine to, to get your energy, then it's, you're, you have to pay it. You have to, basically, you have to pay that back. You know, like on the tail, and you're going to lose half your day the next day. So it's better to just not do that. Right. But but pot works really well because they say it's like it creates a plasticity in our in our brain. So we may see think of something that we wouldn't have thought of without it. Like because it's like our our thoughts are a little more free flowing, and we also have a little bit more, um, you know, the courage to do something we might not have done if we're a little bit high. Because some people will hold back to like that's a stupid idea. They don't even consider it. But if you're high, you'd be like, well, let me try it. We'll just put it, you know. And then you find something amazing. Yeah. So I think being high sometimes. It, how many people? I mean, have you know? So many artists. They say, oh, I smoke pot before I write. It's a common tool, and it's, I think it's one of the best that we have available. Right. Lyrically, though, when I'm when I'm in a in a pinch, and I'm not feeling it, what churns my butter is yerba mate. What's that? It's um it's an herb that you that you that you that you found in South America. It's usually it's big in Argentina, Paraguay, really? Uruguay, and they basically it's loose it's loose ground up herb, and you pour hot water into it and you strain it and you drink it in, in like a cup that has like a strainer. But it's 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 what's like the an, what's the drug in it? It's a natural stimulant. It's called mate. It's a, stim- it's a stimulant. Yerba, so, but it's not ca- it's not caffeine that you that's in it. It's yeah. It's probably it's probably like a natural form of caffeine. Gotcha. Yeah. I have to look into that. Yeah. But yerba mate is like it just helps open up the brain, um, especially for writing. I think caffeine's a, a wonderful stimulant for writing. I mean, morning cup of how many writers wouldn't be writing what they're writing without coffee? I mean. Yeah. It changed. Actually, Michael Pollan's book, he talks about how the age of enlightenment may have came simply because that's when coffee was introduced because water wasn't drinkable without having something like, so basically what they would do is they would give their kids and everybody would drink alcohol because alcohol killed bacteria. So if you drink water, you might get dysentery, but you could drink alcohol. So everybody was boozed up constantly. <laughs> and then all of a sudden coffee comes and because right. you boil it to make it, it right. killed the bacteria. Kill the bacteria. So they started drinking coffee and all of a sudden everybody started like the age of enlightenment happened because everybody's now on coffee versus alcohol. Right. It's pretty fascinating. So, I mean, there's tools to, to churn the butter a little bit, but I just personally don't like to use a lot of drugs in the studio. Gotcha. I mean, do you, you, try, do you meditate? Um, my own form of it, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll take, I'll take time and, like, completely close myself off from the world and sleep. And yeah. just sleep, lay down, dream, 
remember the dreams, go back and, and, and go there. I go I go to that world. Have you done do you do lucid dream training? Have you ever heard of that? Um, I think it it just it it came upon me. Yeah, but do I, like, so do you have lucid dreams where you know you're dreaming and you play around with them while you're in there? Yep, absolutely. That's amazing. See, I, absolutely. I don't, but I have, and I did when I was doing the practice. And the practice was: is anytime you said, anytime you open a door, ask yourself if you're dreaming in real life, and you do that, and eventually in your dream, you're going to open up a door, and you're going to ask yourself if you're dreaming because you're in the habit of doing that, and you're going to realize the answer is yeah. And I did it, and it actually worked. I actually had some lucid dreams, but I, I quit the practice. But yeah, so it's it happens. It used to happen a lot um, when I was in my twenties. But now it happens less. But when it does happen, it's usually as pivotal as a as a as a mushroom trip or, or a psychedelic trip. I don't see why it wouldn't be, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not, it's actually if anything, it might be even more. I mean, you're right. immersed in another visual right. world. But waking up from that point, I've had I've had dreams literally happen to where I woke up and my 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 complete perspective has moved on to a totally different direction. Gotcha. Now, and have you written music in your dreams? Written, like actually... Well, maybe not like put words or nothing, but just had an idea that was inspired in your dream that you woke up and was like, oh, I got to write that down. Um, I've woken up with ideas, but I, as far as like being in a dream and, and playing, I'm sure I've had that happen throughout the course of my life, but actual like remembrance of something in a dream, no. But I've literally woken up out of a good, you know, good REM sleep and had something come to me. You yeah. Know, at that, at that. Yeah. It's, it's, well, like I've actually had a dream where I was playing the song and writing it and I woke up and was like, I, and I went and got my guitar and started writing it down. I don't think it ended up being good. Like once I was awake, I was like, eh, it was better, you know, in my head. But that yeah. happens with a lot of songs. But, um, but yeah, no, and also, so you just wake up sometimes, just inspired, like from something you dream, and like I have an idea now. So yeah, it came. Have, it'll have a melt. You just have a, like a lingering, you know, two notes or a riff or something of that form. After waking up and maybe getting up and walking around and catching the elements, I get up and walk out, walk outside in the in the morning, three, four in the morning, sometimes, and check out the stars and check out the constellations. And, and that's your way of meditating, sort of like. Like just being out there, and also, also you say lucid dreaming, but you don't actually do like breathing exercise meditations. No, I mean I'm not against it. Um, I mean I've never. I think I've been to maybe two yoga classes in my life. Yeah, I've never been to a yoga class. I do it on the internet though. Follow the person. Sure. But the thing is, is I feel like an hour's would be too long. Every time I do, I do like a twenty minute one. I'm like I'm good. Yeah. A, a short attention span or something, but I think there's just I think there's many forms of of ways of many ways that you can meditate. It doesn't have to necessarily be that. Oh, oh I agree with that completely. A lot of people meditate when they're working, and uh, like if you're a musician, you probably meditate when you're in a really good good song that you're you're playing or writing. Sure. You get into those because because as long as all your attention is focused in the present moment, that's what meditation is. Mm-hmm. If you're really in a moment with the song, you're meditating. Right, driving for me like. My last two cars have had no stereo in there, so I'm used to driving with no music. Yeah. So silence also helps. I agree with that. Sometimes I turn off my music, especially after a gig. I'm like, I just want quiet. Right. Drive home. Right. Take in all the sounds. Be just be in the moment. Right. That's exactly. The, yeah, and that's the. And I was just gonna say, like, if you're not, if you're wanting to write music and you're not in, it, or you don't have drugs to use or don't want to use drugs, getting into that meditative moment sometimes. 
if you can do some breathing exercises and pull yourself into the present moment, then that's all you need. Now that you're here, you get into your songs. But sometimes you start lackadaisical and your song will pull you into the present moment by itself. Right. It's random. It, there's, there's yeah. no, there's no, it's, it's totally nonlinear. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. I, my, my writing process is nonlinear. Sometimes it'll be like, well, let me go in the room today and let's make a beat. Make, see, you know, make a bass line. All right, I'm getting something here, you know? Then I'll put it aside. Yeah. Otherwise, it's an acoustic. Sometimes it's a word. Yeah. There's no... there's word, there's no phrase real... that you could build a song around. Sure. Sometimes it's the melody that I build. I find, the words have to find their way into the melody that I already have. But sometimes the words are here. I got to make a melody with to fit. So it's, yeah, there's, for me too, no rhyme or reason to how I'm going to write lyrics. Right. But um, typically I do write them the way uh, Jeff Tweedy talked about writing them that way where he... You get a song and then you just kind of mumble over the top. I think a lot of people write that way. And, um, and that's what I would do, just going to come up with some mumbling, cool melodies. And then be like, oh, that sounds like this. And then I say it and like, what could that mean? Where could that go? And then the song kind of just forms. Yeah, that happens quite a bit. I hate doing it in rehearsals. I usually like if, if there's like a unit, if there's a unit thing going on and we're playing, I'd rather just not. Not saying construct, yeah. Construct first, and then let me do that. Do that razzmatazz at the house, and then come back with something somewhat concise before. This is also where, where weed <laughs> helps because if I'm high, I'll do it in front of everybody yeah. and just come up with melodies. But if I'm sober, I'm I'm, I'm like, nah, I'm not yeah. doing that. I'm just. Gonna... But then, the, then you have those moments where a phrase a phrase works for the whole time, and you're singing it even though you might replace it with something else later. But it sets the the tone and the theme. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, definitely. Yeah, I've had songs build that way for sure. And um, the last metal project that I was in was like that. We were, they were real heavy. A lot of the lyrics that I had were ended up being kind of anti-religion lyrics because I think I'm just so influenced by Tool and bands like that that it's like when I hear heavy stuff, the things that I get mad about are, for me, a lot of the religious stuff that I grew up with, the hard, hardcore dogmatic people that think one way very like this is the way life is and it's like i don't believe that the rattlesnake slingers oh that shit's crazy man there was this one church in west virginia where um somebody got or a grandfather died from a rattlesnake bite at the pulpit he was a preacher and then his son died like 20 years later at the same pulpit with a rattlesnake bite <laughs> it's just what was the story on that like why why did they do that anyway I, I think that they're like, uh, I, I have all my faith in God. I can hold this rattlesnake, and I have power. Because the rattlesnake represents the serpent, the which, serpent. Is, which is the devil. So it's like, I have power over this animal because God is in me. And as long, and it's and it's probably a powerful, if you're in the, the service and you're watching this, you're like, yeah, a rattlesnake, that's how real this religion is. And you have to play games with people like this because it's kind of a, sorry, but it's kind of a ridiculous story, I, I think. Um, are you religious? You know, I have been to many congregations in my life yeah and i like to keep it that way because i don't have a specific uh religion that i levitate towards but to hear words to hear congregations to hear a message i've heard many of them yeah and some of them are great and, and also i i don't have a problem if christianity brings joy to your heart and purpose to your life that's great what I have a problem with is when you take that religion and you say, well, it is no matter what I believe true, so therefore you try to get legislation passed based on your religion. You want to take women's rights away, these things, because and forever gay people couldn't get married, and a lot of Christians quoted the Bible for that. We don't live in a theocracy. Your Bible should have nothing to do with the laws that are passed. That I have a problem with. But as far as you personally going to church, whatever makes you happy. You get, yeah. you know, we're, we're all in this. Faith is faith, and randomness is randomness. I mean, there's, there's... There's a obviously something 
there is a creator. There has to be. The sisters just show up. I I think that way too. Honestly, for a while there, I was completely atheist. I was like, this is all. But then, but th- what was that? Is that? Not the dog. Okay. Um, yeah, Reggie. He sits by the door while we do these things. Um, but yeah, I, I thought there's no way this is just a random accident. I read Until the End of Time by Brian Greene, and he explained the Big Bang, how the particles went and coalesced and became suns and then re-exploded and that were basically all just random particles that happened to come to this. I'm like, it was a very depressing book, but I don't believe it. You can't tell me. I believe what you're saying mathematically. That's how we got here. But there's something behind that. Is it a simulation? I think when we die, it's going to be like a, oh, my God, that was crazy. Like, we're going to have this moment where we're in another, you know, I don't know what it is. So it's like when you're born, if you, I don't know if you remember, when, what, was your, what was your first memory you had as a child? The earliest one I can recall is picturing a ball. I, I, I like kicking balls around, so I, I picture a soccer ball in a field somewhere. Or maybe not in a soccer ball, but there was a ball, there was grass. That was the earliest memory. I was probably like two or three. All right. I remember having a bottle in my mouth. Really? And my brothers are, your mom's going to be home, your mom's going to be home soon at like barely one. Really? But like at that moment, it was like, that's what I'm trying to go at. Like, what do you do when you die? You don't know what you see. I remember being like a little kid, not being able to talk, going, I'm here. What the hell? And I remember that. Like, I have a photographic memory of, of that's that. Crazy. That's crazy. That's that's pretty awesome, man. Because um, that is a weird feeling, I, I would imagine. Like I say, I don't have the memory, but the idea of not knowing what life is, but being in it, and then kind of starting to figure out that this is where I am, that's got to be a bizarre feeling. <laughs> yeah. So, but, I mean, I don't know, man. Like, who has the answers? I do. I will say this, though. It's it's scary not having answers. And that's why Christian, Christ, Christ, people like in my family that are Christian, if they don't have Christianity, then what is this? And they go crazy. They're like, I can't. So they have to have, I'm going to heaven when I die. I get to be with Jesus. I get to see my friends and family up there. That's what they need. And that's nothing wrong with that. And it might be true. I don't think it'll be true like the Christian version exactly. But it could be that we all have another life together. And maybe your version becomes true because that was where your heart wanted it to be. I don't know. But whatever did create this didn't want us to know. That was part of the deal. We're not supposed to know, right? <laughs> Which is and that's and I dig that. That's kind of how I look at it. There's a, there's a mysterious there, but there's also, for me, there's a trust. Yeah. I have a I have a trust with this galaxy or whatever Higher you power. want to call it. Yeah, whether it's I God do. or the universe. I was I I actually used to say prayers to the universe, like you know, universe. Listen, here's what's going on because sometimes prayer is a good thing. It's just you're just talking out your 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 whatever you're going through or saying something for somebody you love because it's hard to deal with what they're going through does it help it doesn't hurt that's for sure right i think there's i think there's a vibration there like there's something as primitive yeah i think it's something as primitive as as to why i was good enough or i was into um i shouldn't say good enough to try different religions. i should say into being in different religions or checking out different religions it's because that you know i just had that universal trust that there's something else that I can get to check in with every now and then. <laughs> I definitely agree that there's something else there. There has to be. And um, of course, I've smoked DMT and went into another world that was, I'm, it was real. Something was there. Like, it's like this, this there's a, a whole other world happening right here beside, with ours. And I think when we die, we're going to be into that. That's where we're going to be. But I don't know. I could be wrong. That could have all been in my head. I don't know. Right. Nobody does. That's like, um, there is this I, I went back to college a couple of years back, and I remember them showing us 
this girl on a lawn. Started out with her on a lawn, and it, it went out all the way out to the planets and to the, the solar system, beyond the solar system that we grew up in in the science books, and then to, like, the Milky Way, and then it went back into the Earth, back into her body, and back into, like, going into the cells and, and breaking. It, it was just showing, like, the yeah. the, the, the maximus and the, the minimus. I don't know if, that's, if those are real terms, but... Right, I you, got the, you. The, Totally like the macros out. and the micros. Yes, yeah. yes. You know what I mean? And and it just basically, like, just lets you know that even, like, there's atoms flying around our, out, around here right now. Yeah, there's actual, this is not space here. This is oxygen. This is everything else. We are completely connected by all kinds of invisible things. That's what life is. It's, right. it's all particles. But when we go into the ground or when we get turned into ash or whatever, like... Where does all that? Where does all that all, stuff? Go? All of our energy and all of our particles. They, they, they actually said. I read something that every one of us actually has the particles of everybody that's ever lived. Like, because there's so many billions of them that, like, you actually would have a particle from Anne Frank, and and one of your particles is just used to be evolved was a part of her body. Now it's a part of your body. That's just there's because there's so many might even be trillions of particles that make up who we are. We're talking about the basic building blocks that make us physically exist. Sure. So it's kind of fascinating to think that, you know, every, everybody that's ever lived, every musician, well, I don't know about in our time, but I don't know. I, I read it in one of Bill Bryson's books, but it's pretty cool. It's a fun thought. Okay. Now, what what was the thought? Just that we that we all have a piece of somebody else, and it's like a particle that evolved from people in, the, people in history. So, like, whether it's... I don't know whoever you idolize from the from from the distant past. Their bodies, those particles get dispersed in the universe, and then when we're born, we as we grow, we we have to build with particles, and we we become because you think about it, you start as a embryo, and then as you grow from an embryo, you're consuming and you're building and you're taking in all these particles. Well, some of those particles belong to every other person that's ever existed. That was physically them. Is now you. It's pretty cool. It's interesting. Interesting. It's interesting. I mean. I definitely feel a connection to certain artists, you know? I mean, I, I mean, if I was a race car driver, would I feel this connection to another race car driver? I don't know. Who knows? I don't know how that works. You know <laughs> what I mean? Or, or a jockey. Who knows, right? right. But as far as, as far as being another artist, like that, I felt a connection with the Velvet Underground last night, and it kind of heightened some emotions of the scene I came from. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was just like, all right, these two things could have possibly, and they have in their own weird way, have correlated. Like, yeah. as far as what I've done musically, what my friends have done musically, there's been crossings of paths with that Lower East Side vibe. You yeah. Know? That, that's the New York, yeah. Yeah. Velvet Underground. Yeah. yeah. You know? There's been some some crossing of paths of people that have been associated with that whole scene in my life. I'm not going to go into too much detail because I don't want to be a name dropper, but that's the thing. I hold it true. Yeah. You know what I mean? I hold it true in my heart. The one thing I will say is when I did record the first record, Gray Area, it was right down the street from where CBGB's was, which is now John Barbados. We were in a building that was called Collective Hardware, but the I got to see... Andy Warhol's and and um, Basquiat's 
collaborations before I recorded. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And that in that general area, like it's definitely losing some of the relics that were there, you know, some of the history. It's totally changing, but I got to catch it before it did. 2009, 2010. That's awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I could, I could, I could probably go on some crazy tangents of personal premonitions that I've had. Like, I've had premonitions amongst our community of people that have passed that are musicians or artists. Like, yeah. But symbols. I mean, I've seen. I've seen symbols in the clouds. I've I've seen it like many times where I've, there's a certain way that the clouds look. That I happen to see them. I I kind of make a note to myself to brace myself, and then it's come true. Like a sign. Yeah. Yeah. My wife's like that with cardinals. Anytime she sees a cardinal, she's like, "That's a good sign that good things are coming." Right. And it's not necessarily even like big clouds or gray clouds or rain or storm there's just certain little patches little small like cotton balls that i will see that it will kind of give me a signal to kind of be on the lookout because there might be someone and it's it's happened before and i guess what i'm trying to say is like, like, like you were touching on those the connections i felt like there is a commu- there is a communal connection with artists I definitely I felt that yeah because the way that we receive information we were I think that we received information a little bit differently than people that have not taken on their possibility of being creative because I think everyone has a potential of being creative I do too everybody has a potential but the the people that are the most successful at art are able to tap into that like you said it's because every artist says the same thing and I, I say it too when I'm writing and I get into a groove of writing a story or whatever I'm writing, it's not coming from you. It's coming through you. We're vessels. Exactly. I I truly believe we're vessels. And I think that there is a connection and there is influence, there's inspiration for a reason, you know? Um, Yeah, and we're all, if if it's coming through us from something else, then all of us artists are connected by whatever that thing is that we're, that's feeding through us. Sure. So we all have that in common. It's almost like we're all bonded by that eternally. I mean, right. And I agree. I mean, whether you, whether you're, whether you've got the biggest record deal possible or in a scandal attached to it, or you have a dichotomy because you're just putting your shit out and you're living a double life because you got to go to work. I think we, in, within that whole bandwidth, I think we all encounter a lot of the same things. I agree. I think a lot of the big artists they they start with it open uh, opened up to that signal, but then once they get certain big, they sell out. They get cut off from that, but a lot of them don't write their own songs anymore. So the people that are writing it who are still connected to that are giving them the songs. I don't know, probably getting over analytical on this, but but there's definitely um people that I see take advantage of of that and uh, it's a weird thing with artists and profit cuz there's so much money for recording artists. That are that are successful, and then there's so many great artists who there's no money for because of all the money that's, like, uh, was it Kevin talking about Mariah Carey? Her record deal came in to, to their deal that was kind of one of, the, one of the reasons they got shut out was the cost that they owed for Mariah Carey, something like that. But these big artists suck up a lot of the wealth, and a lot of artists they don't, it, you know, it's weird. Bill Maher did a, a, a bit about this, and he was talking about how. 
he's like, if you're if you're not famous, it's because you suck. And he's, he's, it was trying to be funny, but he's like, people that have a music's hard, the good ones are on the radio, and it was just kind of really insulting to hear him go on this rant about how people are complaining about musicians not being able to make it because of the saturated market or something like that. But he's like, they haven't made it because they're not any good. I'm like, you don't understand the music business. You're not in it. And it's not that. It's not what it is. You know how hard it is to be an up and coming act that doesn't have an in with somebody. I mean, you can, you have to have the money to tour the world and, and constantly tour as much as you can to get your name known that way, the old fashioned way. It's always, it's impossible to big like really not to say impossible, but it's, it's hard to get across that hurdle. And I, I feel bad for so many musicians, all especially after COVID. I mean, how many musicians got screwed after that that were about to go on tour? Yeah, yeah. But I think, um, I think that it's kind of evened out the playing field. The COVID has. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's evened it out because we're all feeling the same thing, um, feeling the effects of it. The show must go on, but I think there's an overall appreciation for creativity. That is true. At least at least within the art the artistic community. Like and I and I say that wholeheartedly because the consumer is winning right now. Yeah. As far as what the, what they have at their disposal. Yeah. They're winning. Um now I can name a, a, a few artists that are legendary, but are still juggling. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's okay. You know why? Because even the guys at the top, quote unquote, the top, felt that shit. Yeah. Because nobody could play anything. Nobody could do shows. Everybody that's was- That's true. You know, everybody was on, you know, you know, a podcast or a cast trying to perform because they missed that rush or where they had to keep the motion. I think it just evened it out, and I think we should just take it as a reset. Yeah, it's the only way we can take it. That's the only way you can take it as a reset to reemerge. Yeah. And that's it. And everybody. I mean, there's no one, there's no artist that did not. When I say artists, I mean musicians. I mean painters, photographers. Anybody who's creating. Anyone who's creating. You know what I mean? Like, but... Was pointedly right now musicians. I feel like everyone has had to deal with a little bit of eating and some crow. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's um, like you said, it was hard for everybody. I do think though that a lot of the artists that were already had careers, it was easy for them to come out of this. With uh, also another thing is a lot of the artists that were worried about COVID. Actually, you know, some people didn't want to tour because of COVID. The, the the successful artists I can't get that thing to turn off the, right. the successful artists were with money in their bank accounts didn't have to go right back to work people like us like we were like oh as soon as we can work we're going back regardless of if I'm gonna get sick which I didn't I'm fine I'm not you know but I'm just saying it was like a thing where you saw that uh, the people with money stayed home and then the rest of us went back and started you know hitting the grind right but. Well, you want to go grab a beer? Yeah, let's grab a beer. All right, well, it's great having you on the podcast, Michael, and hopefully I'll get you back in here again sometime. All right. All right. Peace out. Peace out. Peace out. Peace out.